the long-promised Davidic king of Israel. He's here. The kingdom has begun. That's incredibly significant in what John wants to show throughout his gospel. But we're not done yet. Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, this is he, Jesus, said to Nathanael, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Our final title in these introductions of the disciples. He's not only the Messiah, not only the subject of prophecy, not only the Son of God, not only the King of Israel, the Davidic promised King, he is the Son of Man. Now, before I deal with that title, I want you to see this quite significant statement of the Lord Jesus in verse 31. You'll see greater things than he's truly, truly. Remember, truly, truly in Greek is amen, amen. Amen, amen, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending. What is that drawing on? That's drawing on Genesis chapter 28. When Jacob, who is running from his brother Esau, headed up to Padam Aram, to where he's going to spend seven years with, with Laban, his, his uncle, he has a dream, and he sees angels ascending and descending on a heavenly ladder. And at the top of that ladder in heaven, he sees one like the Son of Man. So what Jesus Christ is doing in his response to Nathaniel is connecting what he, who he is and all these revelatory titles with this remarkable dream of Jacob in Genesis 28, which confirms for Jacob that he is the covenant son. He is the covenant son, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, through whom God is going to fulfill the Abrahamic covenant. So Jesus is connecting the Abrahamic covenant and its fulfillment with himself. And he uses the title, the son of man. Now, if you don't know that title, you need to make sure you know that. That is the title Jesus used most to refer to himself. It is a connection to Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. And you look at that passage in Daniel chapter 7. It's one of those passages where Daniel, one of his visions, one like the Son of Man comes up to the Ancient of Days and receives kingdom, authority, and dominion. This is the authoritative Son of Man who will fulfill all of the dominion rule of God on this rebellious planet. And so Son of Man is one of the most remarkable titles that Jesus claims, and here he is connecting the two. Here he's connecting to, um, with, um, connecting this with, with Jacob's vision in, in the uh, 20th chapter of um, of, of Genesis. <clears throat> now, can everybody see me? For some reason on my screen, okay, now it's corrected. Okay, good. Now, all of a sudden, I wasn't seeing anybody. All right, good. So whatever happened, Glenn or somebody corrected it. Thank you. All right, now I just went through all of that. 
If I were to ask you to do a thought paper for today's class, I would ask you, from the passage, John chapter 1, verse 41 through the end of the chapter, list and explain all of the titles for Jesus. Because this is a very important section that's unique to all the other Gospels. All the Gospels have Jesus calling his disciples. What John does is in each one of the disciples he itemizes here, you have a revelatory title of Jesus being itemized out. And it's remarkable. He's the Messiah, the subject of Old Testament prophecy, the Son of God, the Davidic King of Israel, and the Son of Man, i.e. Daniel 7.13. So this is a very significant part of what John is trying to do as he presents Jesus, quoting all of those significant elements of the calling of the disciples that the other gospel accounts don't mention. And so it's, it's just a significant passage of Scripture, and it's significant in what John is trying to prove in terms of who is this Jesus. Got it? Any questions? It's a very significant passage of Scripture. This, this probably isn't the mainline question, but um, what do you get from um, the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man? Is that, uh, what, um, what kind of, what does that conjure up in your mind, or what does that reflect uh, as far as other scripture, um, and, you know, in addition to his baptism, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. What would you add to that, Jim? What does that really mean? Well, uh I, I, I thought I'd try to explain that, but I'll try it again. Yeah, One, it is, um, it is connecting, and, and this is what Jesus wants to do with Nathaniel and presumably the other disciples who may have been listening to this conversation. But I want you to see that in Genesis 28, where Jacob, who is scared out of his mind, he is afraid of Esau. He's afraid that Esau is going to bring retribution. He's running from Esau, and he's headed up way north to, to get away. He's going to be up there with his uncle Laban. Well, anyway, so God, in his mercy and his grace, this occurs near a little town called Bethel. When Jacob is asleep, God gives him this vision, and he reminds Jacob, even though you are running from your brother, even though you have done deceptive, manipulative, deceitful, conniving things, you are still the covenant son. What I promised to your grandfather Abraham, what I promised to your father Isaac, I am reaffirming in my promise to you. And to validate that, I want you to see that you are metaphorically, figuratively connected with heaven, with me. And the blessing of this covenant is illustrated by this ladder where you see angels going up and down. I'm confirming that you are the covenant son. And at the top of that ladder is one like the son of man, one like God. Jesus is saying, I am that one. I'm who was standing at that. So for Nathaniel, who is an Israelite, where there's no deceit, a man of integrity, a man of, of inestimable character, 
and trustworthiness, who has affirmed you're the son of God, you're the Davidic king of Israel. He says, Nathaniel, I also want to confirm, you are going to see even more fantastic things than this. You're going to see proof after proof after proof that I am the son of man detailed in Daniel 7.13 that is connected to what Jacob saw as God renewed the covenant with him. You are, meaning Nathaniel, you will be the one who will be blessed to see all of these messianic miracles and messianic proofs of who I am. You already have acknowledged who I am with your remarkable statement, Son of God, Davidic King of Israel. There's nothing else comparable to this in, uh, other than Genesis 28 of what Jesus is trying to do, but he's connecting himself and his person and who he is with the Abrahamic covenant and with everything it meant to be a Jew. I am the one who is the object of all of these prophecies, all of these titles, and all of these narrative instances, like, for example, in Genesis 28 with uh, Jacob, the, the Jacob's ladder, as it's sometimes called. So, I mean, th- Jesus is just making all these connections for these guys to really make sense of who he is to validate and prove and, 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 and give confidence in their hearts and in their minds that this Jesus is the Messiah, the subject of prophecy, the Son of God, the Davidic King of Israel, and the Son of Man. Think Genesis 28, Daniel 7, 13. And so this is, this is very revelatory for them and it's revelatory for us. It reveals profound truth and doctrinal statements that the rest of the gospel of John is going to prove over and over and over again. All of these titles will be proved, will be proven and validated throughout the remaining chapters of the gospel of John. That's the best I can do. With, with Thank you. Got these titles, everybody? That's your thought paper for next week. All right. Now let's move into chapter two. A very familiar miracle of Jesus. Even people who don't care about scripture somehow know this story. It's the marriage ceremony where Jesus turns water into wine. On the third day, now here John again, he doesn't always do this. But John here is trying to follow a tight chronology. So on the third day, in other words, after his dialogue with Nathaniel, which we just finished studying, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. You already know from verse 43 that they're in Galilee, the northern part of Israel. Cana is a little village, a little village kind of uh, northwest of the Sea of Galilee. Again, uh, next week, uh, I want to use a map. I'm going to look at a number of these place names. I, I maybe should have started to do that today. But anyway, uh, it's just, if you you know where the Sea of Galilee is, up north. So it's kind of northwest of the Sea of Galilee. They're in Cana. We don't know whose wedding it is, but because the mother of Jesus 
has a discussion with her son, we are assuming it's a relative. It's a relative of Jesus' family, because his mother is perhaps the one who is overseeing what you and I would call in the 21st century the reception that went with the wedding. But anyway, there's in Cana. This isn't a very big town. It's not a very big city. The mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, again, because she seems to be concerned about this crisis, there's no more wine, she goes to her son. She knows her son. She knows who he is. And she says they have no wine. And Jesus' response to her is actually, for you and me, when you first read it, it sounds like a little disrespectful, almost unkind. Woman, what does this have to do with me? <laughs> I mean, I my mother died last April. I don't think in the 93 years of my mother's life I ever referred to her as woman. I don't think I ever called her woman, <laughs> but we're in the first century. And the, honestly, I mean, that probably sounds a little hard to, to imagine in the way we talk to our mothers, but it is a term of polite discourse. It would be somewhat like saying, madam, it, not exactly, but it's comparable to that. So he's not being derisive. He's not being glib. He's not looking down on her. He's just saying, Madam, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. So what he's doing is he begins to use a term that you're going to see over and over and over again in the Gospels, and especially here in the Gospel of John. That term is our. And when the Lord uses the term hour, my hour has not come. He's talking about his death, burial, and resurrection. What is this to do with me? The main reason I have come to earth doesn't have anything to do with this. Why are you bringing this to me? Now, again, one of the things that is going on here, too, is Jesus is going to start doing what are called messianic miracles. He's going to start doing supernatural acts to prove that he is the Messiah of Israel, to prove all of the things that are in the Old Testament prophecies. For example, Isaiah will say, you will know Messiah, he will heal the sick, give sight to the blind, give hearing to the deaf, etc., etc. So Jesus is saying, wait a minute, Mom, I'm not sure I want to think about this yet. Now, I'm really being a little bit humorous here. But Jesus is kind of saying, woman, this doesn't really have anything to do with me. However I respond to what you're asking, I don't know. My hour has not yet come. So his mother is, I, I find this also somewhat remarkable. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. So she completely puts the onus on Jesus. Okay, if you don't want to do anything, fine. But if you want to do something about this problem, I know you can do it because I know who you are. So she kind of leaves it in Jesus' lap. 
And so, verse 6 tells us, now there were six stone water jars for the Jewish rites of purification. Each, now I'm reading from the ESV translation, they take the liberty of converting these weights into weights that you and I would be familiar with, 20 or 30 gallons in size. If you go and read it in the Greek, it's metretos. By the way, we, we get our word metric from that, by the way. But when you try to bring that into 21st century measurements, it would be between 20 and 30 gallons. Now, I'm sure you, if you're thinking now, stone water jars that could contain 20 to 30 gallons of a liquid, we have found numerous, when I say we, I mean in archaeology, they have found a significant number in archaeological digs all over Galilee of jars that look like this. We know exactly what they look like. And archaeological digs have found over and over again exactly these kinds of water pots. These were used because, as you know, Jews were not supposed to eat meals after certain activities during their day. They were to purify themselves. These were the jars that were used for that purpose. So Jesus says, I want you to take six of those. And he said, I want you to fill these jars with water, verse 7. And they filled them up to the brim. Now, these would be very heavy. One, they're stone, and two, they're now filled with water. And he said to them, draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants had drawn the water new, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. So we learn a couple of things that I think are important from this miracle before I look at verse 11. <clears throat> Number one, it is important that the very first recorded miracle of Jesus in his public ministry was at a marriage feast, at a wedding. What was the very first institution God created? Go back to Genesis 2. It was marriage. When he performs the first wedding ceremony between Adam and Eve, sanctifies that with the extraordinary statement in Genesis 2.24. For this reason, a man shall leave his mother and father, cleave to his wife like glue, and they will now be for the rest of their lives in the process of becoming one flesh. I just embellished the tense of the verbs there in Hebrew. So God created that first institution which was the most important institution he created. And here is Jesus performing the first recorded miracle at a wedding. The second thing we observe about this is that what Jesus did in this miracle was a, a miracle of excellence. This is the wine. This is the best wine. This, this is the the, the most fermented, best you could possibly get in the ancient world, that's what Jesus miraculously did, converting water in these purification pots, which were quite large, into the best wine you could imagine. 
And one of the things, if you look at the prophecies in the Old Testament, I'm thinking like Amos, I'm thinking parts of Joel, I'm thinking in Jeremiah and all of the prophetic uh, passages in Isaiah about the coming kingdom, it always mentions the flowing of wine in the land, that that becomes a sign of rich blessing from God, tangible, tactile evidence of God's material blessing. It's good wine that flows in abundance. That's what Jesus did here. And again, that is connecting as they would think about that, they, and I think primarily his disciples, but others, as they would think about that, they're going to start to make all of those connections. This is the Messiah. And he is doing the things that all the messianic prophecies said he would do. That's why John, in verse 11 of chapter 2, draws this concluding statement. This is the first of his signs. You ought to underline that or circle that in your Bible. That will be the term that John will use throughout the rest of his gospel. Those signs, as you know, a sign attests to or shows or demonstrates something. This is the sign, excuse me, this is the first sign that he is the Messiah, that he is the Son of God, that he is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies, that he is this, the Davidic son, or the Davidic uh, uh, king of Israel, that he is the Son of Man. And so this is the first of those signs. So all those titles that were revealed in the account of the calling of the disciples, now are going to be validated by his messianic miracles. And John likes to use the word sign. The first of his signs Jesus did at Canaan Galilee and manifested his glory. What does that mean? No one, no one can instantaneously change jars of water into jars of the best wine possible than God because you're taking something that takes months of fermentation. If you're really talking about very, very good wine, years. And he did it at the snap of a finger. No one can do that but God. And so the glory of God is manifested by this sign, because the only explanation for what just happened was a supernatural manifestation of the power and glory of God instantly, the snap of a finger. And the result was his disciples believed in him. Now you're going to see that over and over again, the disciples, because what is happening is their faith and their convictions and trust in Jesus is deepening. And so they see there's only one explanation for this. God did this. Whoa. He is who he says he is. All of these titles that we're drawing out of the Old Testament, he is who he says he is. And you're going to see this over and over again. And John wants to do one more thing, and that's in verse 12. He wants to explain to us that Jesus goes to Capernaum. 
And he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and there he stayed for a few days. Capernaum is going to become a very important city in the public ministry of Jesus. For two years, Capernaum is going to be the center, the geographical center of his Galilean ministry. It's not his hometown. His hometown is Nazareth. But it tells us that Mary, his mother, and his brothers, his siblings, they relocate to Capernaum for a while. Now, they're gonna, they are not going to stay there, but Jesus will stay there, as you'll see later on. So John is just giving us a geographical point. Capernaum is going to become an important town in the public ministry of Jesus. All right, any questions about the, the miracle of Cana? Uh, again, it's a very familiar one. Even an unbeliever are familiar with it. Dr. Eckman? Yes, yes, John. Okay. Um, you say that John preferred to usually use the word sign. Yes, he likes <laughs> to use that word. Though uh, I don't know in the Bible, but this is often referred to as a miracle. That's right. Um, why the distinction there? Why doesn't John refer to him as miracles? Is it is is the word sign more of a manifestation of God's power, uh, the miracle, or do you have any comment about that? Well, I I think um, I think so. I, I mean, a miracle can be any aspect of God directly intervening in space-time history. You and I could say, if we are fervently praying about something and God answers, you would say, that's a miracle of God. You know what I mean? Like you're praying for the health of a friend or, you know, we've been praying for Ed, uh, Ed Petsky, who had just undergone uh, prostate surgery and God's answered his prayers. I, I mean, you can say that was a miraculous provision of God in his grace. But John's choosing a different term. And that term is seismion, it's translated sign, which I think is more significant because the term sign elevates what Jesus is doing a couple of notches. And you could therefore paraphrase sign as a proof, a proof of who he is. Because one of the major themes of the four Gospels is the words and works of Jesus prove who he is. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all do that. They combine his teaching with his miraculous works. What John is doing, because John's going to focus a lot on his teaching, John is choosing to use when Jesus does a miraculous work, he's going to call it a sign. He's going to call it a proof of who Jesus is. And so I think that's why he chooses the word on. He's choosing the term sign. Does that help a little bit? Yeah, thank you. It's really, it's, that's a great question because it does raise the, the, the element. Why is he choosing that term? The other guys, Matthew, Mark, Luke, don't use that very often. John uses it consistently. And I think what I've just said explains why. Jim, another question on um, <clears throat> 12, verse 12. No mention is made of his father. It's his mother and his brothers. Um, what do you get from that? Uh, 
I'm not sure I understand his mother and his brothers. What do I get from that? What, what do you mean? Oh, no mention of the father. Is oh, no mention of the father. Well, uh, any argument from silence is always weak because we just because it isn't mentioned, uh, you you have to you have to be very careful. But there are going to be a couple of other things that are going to come up throughout the Gospel of John, and really throughout all four Gospels where it seems reasonable to conclude, because Jesus here, at this point in Jesus' earthly life, he's in his 30s. And that means his mother is probably in her 50s. And what that means is, in all probability, since he's not mentioned, Joseph has died. Mary is a widow. Now again, I you know I can't prove that because nowhere in the in the in the gospels does it tell us that. But because of the age, we know Mary would have to be in her early, very early fifties, maybe a little less. And because and and as you undoubtedly know, in the first century, to be in your fifties is to be old. I mean, for you and me to be in your, when you were 50, of course, maybe you're not 50 yet, Fred, but when you were in your early 50s, you were robust, highly athletic. You were running 20 miles a day. Now, as you're 60, you can't do that quite as, as much as you used to. Amen. Whereas in, in the ancient world, to be in your 50s, uh, I mean, that, that you were getting old. And so Mary is in a situation where she needs the care of her children, which is probably why the text is telling us that she and the siblings of Jesus, the siblings are listed in the end of Matthew chapter 13, for example, the siblings, James and Judah and so on are all mentioned there. But so they're, they're, they're temporarily following Jesus. And so they're in Capernaum now. All right. Verse 13. Thank you. Verse 13. Now, this is going to be, and John, is. this is quite important. Uh, Dr. John, uh Yes. Can, can I ask a couple before, yeah. in context, before we yeah. uh, move yeah. on? Sure. Um, and the leaving and cleaving thing, um, you said you embedded, is that a progressive or future, uh, continuous future tense, or is there something more implied yeah, there? It, it, what I did was, um, in, in Genesis 2.24, uh, God, uh, really Moses is probably making this comment because he wrote Genesis, but he's saying, for this reason, what I have just, in from chapter 2, verse 18 through 23 in Genesis, what I have just done is given you the pattern. This is now the pattern for the institution of marriage. This is the pattern how it's supposed to work. The husband leaves his mother and father. There's still the extended family. It's still important. But there's now the conscious, decisive awareness that a new family unit is being formed. Secondly, in leaving his mother and father and forming a new family unit, his now obligation, primary fundamental obligation, is to his wife. And the Hebrew word there is cleave, as one cleaves when glue is used. So, I mean, this is not superficial, shallow. This is an intense 
an intense cleaving and linking with your wife. And then to add to that, the verb tense changes. And they become, it's a future continuous tense. And they shall now be in the process of becoming one flesh. See, I've always understood that as an event as opposed That's, to a future don't, don't continuous. Don't think that way. Don't think yep. that way. No, you've definitely corrected it's, that. Thank it, you. It is, it is symbolized by sexual intercourse when the marriage is consummated in the marriage bed. Yeah. But, I wasn't thinking about Eros. I was thinking about um, where positionally now you are seen as one um, as opposed, and this is more of a sanctification, a process-oriented. Well, yeah, it, I mean, it, it isn't sanctification, but it's that process idea like sanctification. Yeah, like it. Where you, you, you are in the process of becoming one flesh because it's symbolized by sexual intercourse, but where there's two, there's now one. Now you remember, and this is also very important, the husband and the wife maintain all of their idiosyncrasies, all of their uniqueness, male and female unique but now they're one and they serve God together in their integrity and a whole new family unit is being formed. And that it's really, it's that verse is one of the most important verses in the whole Bible. It's often quoted at marriage ceremonies and so on, but it is a profound sentence in God's view of this institution, marriage. Now sacred it is to him, how important it is to him. And that's why correctly, Correctly, we can say marriage is the foundational institution of civilization. And if marriages are not working, you will see all of civilization affected. And I don't think we need to use much of our imagination to see that is one of the problems in American civilization of 21st century. Families are not working very well. Thank you. Um, it, my other question had to do with, um, you said his disciples uh, believed him. Yeah. And I'm have, um, trying to understand because there's stuff that's missing. Um, his disciples are already in place here. He's 30 years old. He's beginning his <laughs> ministry. How did, is, is the process in Mark where the disciples or Matthew or the disciples have all been called in place or just a Nathaniel and a couple of them in place are... What's the, is there some greater insight that you could give me on the, well, I think, kind of the yeah, timeline and well, how those pieces but, fit together? Yeah, John, uh, John is not, John is not really interested in doing things comprehensively. Mm -hmm. He's very, very selective. And so when he chose to give us an account of only a handful of the disciples being called, he did so, I believe, and I, I think that's fairly obvious, he did so only to show the connection of a title of Jesus with the calling of each one of these. By now, by the event which we're going to start reading in verse 13, all 12 of the disciples are in place. But John doesn't, John isn't interested in giving us a comprehensive account of the calling of the 12. He's just giving us a selective account of a handful of them, but each one of them. Andrew, we, Peter, we've just found the Messiah. Philip to Nathaniel, we just found the subject of all the law and the prophets. Uh, and, you know, oh, well, I, I don't need to go over all that again. That's all John is doing. He's selectively giving an account of some of the disciples to reveal the titles of Jesus. Thank That's you. all he's doing. Yep. Okay. Thank you. 
Now verse 13. What time is it here? Oh my goodness. Okay. The Passover of the Jews was at hand. In the Gospels, there are, we believe, three Passover events, three years. Each one of them, Jesus is in Jerusalem. He's a faithful Jew. He is a pious Jew. He's serious about observing all of the important rituals and feast days and sacrifices of Israel. So if it's Passover, he's going to be in Jerusalem. And so John says the Passover of the Jews. This is March, late March, early April, A.D. 30. The Passover of the Jews is at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. He's going from Galilee, going, going over to the King's Highway, headed south at Jericho, heads up, and he goes from about 150 feet below sea level to 200, 2,500 feet above sea level. So you understand he went up to Jerusalem. This every Jew at Passover that's coming from Galilee would have followed this road. And at Jericho, you turn up to go up to Jerusalem. And so that's what John is telling us. Like all Jews in Galilee, when it's Passover, Jesus is headed to Jerusalem. Verse 14. When you go to Jerusalem for the Passover, where do you go? You go to the temple complex. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. Now, this is the first Jesus cleansed the temple twice. Once at the beginning of his public ministry, which we're just going to record, and secondly, at the end of his public ministry, right after Palm Sunday. Because when he enters Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, the very first place he goes is to the temple. We'll talk about that in about three years when we get to the end of John. I'm just kidding. I hope it won't take that long. So this is his first instance. And I want to make a second comment. Selling oxen, sheep, and pigeons, that was a very normal thing to do because most people, especially those who had come from Galilee, which is about an 80, 90-mile trip, they wouldn't bring their animals with them to sacrifice. One, it's, that's, it, that would slow them down, and two, that's costly because they got to feed the animal. The best thing to do, and this is what most of them did, they would buy the animal to be sacrificed there at the temple. The second thing to observe is the money changers. This is a little hard to imagine, but because we don't have that problem in the United States, but depending on where you were, you would have to exchange your money. And the money that was used at the temple was the temple money. And you had to exchange whatever currency you're using, you had to exchange it there because that's what you would use to pay for the animal that you're going to sacrifice. Now, here's the other thing, because you're thinking, wait a minute, this is all normal stuff. And this had been going on for centuries. 
This is what they normally did. But the change was this. Annas, who had been the high priest, his high priest had ended in AD 6. So much of this was going on in the Mount of Olives. And Annas and his son-in-law, Caiaphas, had this idea. Let's bring all of this to the outside court of the temple, temple mount complex. And let's take a, a, little, a little percentage of the revenue. And so they moved the buying, the, the, the selling of these animals, which would be used for sacrifice, and the exchange of the money, wherever you're coming from, so you would change it into the temple currency, which would be used to pay for the animals. They moved all that to the temple complex, the big outer court, and they're taking a little bit of a slice, a little commission from each sale, whether it was the exchange of money or whether it was the buying of the animals. Now, again, this is not occurring on the Mount of Olives to the east of the temple complex. This is on the temple complex. This is what enrages Jesus. And so in verse 15, he makes a whip of cords. Now, the, all, all that means is he just he, he takes a, a, a bunch of, of cords up and ties them together and makes a whip. And he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. Can you envision that? He pours out the coins of the money changers, overturns their temples. And to those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. It should be a house of prayer in Matthew's account of this, Jesus says. So what is going on? Jesus is not against the selling of these animals. Jesus is not against the changing of money. That had to be done, especially for the pilgrims coming from Galilee. What does upset Jesus is they've taken the temple complex and turned it into a profit-making, greed-centered enterprise. And so Jesus, just imagine Try in your creative imagination in your mind, try to envision what this would have looked like. Jesus takes this long whip and he's whipping at these money changers and these guys selling these animals and everything's scattering and running. He's turning over their tables and then he makes this extraordinary declaration. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. What is his disciples? do with this information? What does his disciples do when they watch him, see him do this? They remember that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. I'll tell you, men, and this shows to me that these disciples knew the Old Testament, because I would never think of Psalm 69, verse 9. I would not think of that verse, but they did. They immediately think, oh, that's what Psalm 69 is talking about. That he is the Messiah whose zeal for his temple. It consumes him. So again, 
This is this progressive understanding on the part of the disciples as to who Jesus really is. They're starting to make the connections. They're starting to connect the Old Testament prophecies with what Jesus is doing. The other thing I want you to notice about this, and it is profoundly important doctrinally, Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Davidic king of Israel. Jesus is the son of man. He has every right to claim authority over the temple because it's all about him. All of the sacrifices and everything that went on in the temple, as the book of Hebrews will explain to us, all point to Jesus. So he has every right to exert this authority in cleaning out the temple from these individuals who are not seriously serving the people as had been on the Mount of Olives. They're doing this for personal gain and greed. And Jesus chastises, disciplines, and reclaims Temple Mount for his Father. It's an extraordinary act, indeed a mind-boggling act in the spring of A.D. 30 to see Jesus of Nazareth doing this. But it, again, is further proof of who he is. And so it's, it's, again, revelatory, it's very important, and it's an illustration, indeed a demonstration, of his authority of all those titles that we studied at the end of chapter 1. Got it? If you want to work this into your thought paper, that'd really be good. All right. Any questions? Are you with me on this? It's a very powerful part of God's Word here. I have a question for you. So how do you tie what he did? And I, I totally get the greed aspect of, of what's going on with today's church bazaars and the um, fish feeds for Lent. And you know, the churches are making money on that, right? Oh, Glenn, why? Okay. Oh, uh, look, at time. look at the time. We're out of time. <laughs> I'm going to pray here. I'll, 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 real quick, I'll answer it. Y you know, in and of themselves, things like that, that you know, ultimately raise money for the church, sometimes those events are done for specific funds, benevolence funds, other things of the church. I, you know, I'm not going to sit in judgment and say they're wrong. But as with this situation, the problem wasn't was go what was going on. These things needed to occur, the selling of the animals for sacrifice, the exchange of the money, etc. Then that had been occurring for centuries in the Mount of Olives. It was the motivation of the people that were doing it. That's what the Lord Jesus is especially zeroing in on here. So, Glenn, I mean, people that are doing this you know, to enhance the benevolence fund of a church or something like that. I'm assuming their motives are pure. This is sincere. I, I'm not going to say that 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 in, in, in a sense is comparable to this. But the motivation of what is going on is what God's most interested in a situation like this. Now, before I pray, would you let me do one thing? I know I'm, but I want you to just look at verse 18 because I want you to see the Jews, that's John's favorite term for the Sanhedrin, 
doesn't mean all Jews, it's just the leadership said, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Now, I'm going to stop with that, but I want you to notice, one, they use the term sign, and they're asking him the question, in effect, how do you have the right to do what you just did? And that, I'm going to key in on that next, next Wednesday. Something's gone on, and they're trying to figure out, what in the world is this guy doing? And we're going to connect. Why are they asking that question this way? And that's what we'll de deal with next week, okay? So I hope this is, this, this is great stuff. This is really, really great stuff in revealing who Jesus is and trying to establish not only who he is, but what kind of authority does he have? And that's what John's trying to establish. I'm going to pray, and then we'll, we'll go into the rest of our day, and I'll see you next week. Heavenly Father, we're grateful for the revelation of Scripture, for your word. What we're studying now is revealing in important detail who is Jesus, and does it matter? It does matter. And what John is doing in his gospel is he selectively just gives us an account of a calling of a handful of the disciples, how each one, when they were called, there was a title, a revelatory title. We found the Messiah, the subject of prophecy, the King of Israel, the Son of God. And all of this is just pointing to this Jesus. You can't dismiss him as just a man. He is the God-man with extraordinary authority. We saw that established in him turning in the great institution of marriage, a feast into a wonderful time of celebration, turning that water into wine. And as he claimed the authority as the son of God, the king of Israel, to reclaim the temple for his father as he overturned these, these money changers who were selling and, and all of this for personal profit and greed, not to serve the people. Lord, these are things that point more and more to a clarity of understanding of who Jesus is. The disciples are getting it. They're starting to put all the pieces together. The Gospels reveal to us who Jesus is. Help us to take this seriously as we study it together. Thank you that Ed is with us. We're grateful that you have blessed him and answered prayer in such an extraordinary way. Continue to help him recover quickly, strengthen his body, and we're thankful he's with us. And for Jim Beck, too, that... You've healed him that he's doing so well. So give us a good rest of this day. Lord, each one of these men, strengthen them as men of faith and men of God who will represent you well in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you. Amen. See everybody next week.